millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back. Once again, I would like to start by thanking you all for tuning in and listening to me rattle on about the darkest days of rail. We're now four episodes in, and I'm happy to have not scared you all off yet. Once again, I would like to appeal to all of you if you do want to support the podcast and the work that I'm doing, please share this with anybody that you think might want to listen in. Learn a little bit about these incidents and how the safety culture of the railways has been hard-earned over many years. There is some interesting stuff going off in the world of railway safety at the moment. The RAIB have released a port and a safety digest within the last month and there's obviously the ongoing investigation into the derailment at Stonehaven. In addition, the branch is also investigating the derailment and a subsequent fire on a tanker train at, and I really am making a very weak attempt at pronouncing this, Chlagenoch in Wales. That took place two weeks later. Now, with that out of the way, it's time for us to move into episode four. The bustling industrial metropolis of Manchester was just waking up. Residents of the city starting their walk to work in the mills or the offices of the city. Those walking in from the east started to slow and gather when they reached the river. Looking to the viaduct 40 feet up, they saw wreckage and damaged masonry. As their eyes followed down, they saw a fallen carriage lying with one end in the river below. The year? 1953. The place? Irk. Valley Junction. The cause of the crash is still not certain. The railway industry is tonight coming to terms with yet another disaster. As ambulances ferried away dozens of injured to nearby hospitals, survivors sleeping car coaches and two guards vans ploughed across gardens and into two houses more than 20 yards from the track. As news of the disaster first broke, there was no place for politics. A routine, everyday commute that ended like this. Many dead, over 50 injured, in one of the worst incidents in London's transport history. This is the scene tonight as salvage teams battle to untangle the wreckage of this. Police and fire were to say that the people killed in 76 injured when a train traffic from London King's Cross to King's Lynch derailed on the West Coast Main Line, and 150 firemen from all over the Manchester area were called to the scene. This is Signals to Danger, a podcast where we look at major rail disasters which have occurred in the UK, explain what happened, how the investigation was carried out, and how each of these accidents shaped the industry going forwards. I'm Dan, I work within the rail industry in my day-to-day life, but today, I'll be the one taking you through this podcast. As I've done each episode, allow me to put some context on the era that the accident occurred. We've now gone back in time a little bit further from our previous episodes. So, to put some context on the time, the year is 1953. The 31st of January had seen 1,836 people across several countries and at sea killed by the North Sea Flood of, well, 1953. The 5th of January, 
sees the animated Disney adventure Peter Pan premiere, and the 1st of March is when Joseph Stalin suffers a stroke that would render him unconscious till his death. In fact, the year is a very eventful one, with the first James Bond novel being published in April, and by the time we reach the end of May, Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay became household names when they became the first people to summit Mount Everest. In rail, it had only been several years since the Transport Act of 1947 had grouped all of the rail operators into one national provider, British Railways. By this point, the new national operator, although short-lived, had already seen 18 notable incidents, but by far the most significant had occurred the year before. 1952 had seen one of the really big disasters to occur on the UK rail network, In fact, the last to have a death toll in triple digits. In October 1952, the three-train pile-up at Harrow and Wealdstone had claimed the lives of 112 people and injured a staggering 340. And so, this whistle-stop tour brings us to the morning of Saturday, the 15th of August, 1953. Manchester has always been a city well served by the railway. At present, the city centre has got four mainline stations, Piccadilly, Victoria, Oxford Road and Deansgate. These stations were joined at one point by Manchester Central, which is now an exhibition centre, and Mayfield, which is currently abandoned, but located just next to Piccadilly. In fact, between the years of 1830 and 1844, Manchester was also home to Liverpool Road Station. This was the Manchester terminus of the Liverpool and Manchester Railway, the world's first intercity passenger railway with a timetable of steam-hauled passenger services. After a short 14 years as a passenger station, the increasing amount of traffic and the exponential growth of rail meant that train services were eventually moved to Victoria Station, which became a major station in the city for workers who commuted in. Ten miles down the line, you could find the Lancashire town of Bury, another mill town that had grown up during the Industrial Revolution, this town saw a regular service into the big city. Now, Bury doesn't have a mainline rail station anymore, but in the 50s, services left from Bolton Street Station directly into Manchester. As a side note, most people nowadays will know Bolton Street as the home of the East Lancashire Railway, a heritage line often abbreviated to the East Lancs. The Bury Line, as this was known, had been open since the 1850s, but in 1916 the line was electrified. Now this happened far earlier than some of the previous lines we've discussed, and instead of overhead wires, it was decided that they would use a third rail system. This means that while the wheels of the train sat on two running rails, an extra rail, the third rail, was run alongside the track and electrical power was supplied to the train through it. A contact shoe on the train takes the power from the rail and supplies traction equipment on the train. Unusually, and actually uniquely, the third rail system that they used here picks up power from the side of the rail and not the top. In the case, everywhere else this type of system was installed. Because of this electrification, the 720 train from Bury into Manchester was composed of what must have felt like a cleaner and more modern feeling type of train. The Lancashire and Yorkshire Railway had started using electrical multiple units in the Liverpool area in 1906, and in 1916, they rolled them out on the Bury Line as well. These five-car units were built of an all-metal construction, 
220 tonnes of steel underframe and aluminium panelling. They had provided reliable commuter service into the city ever since they were introduced. On this Saturday morning, the electric train departed Bury at 7.20, heading out onto the relatively short 9.75 mile journey into Manchester. With motorman F. Hardman at the controls, the journey was uneventful, and the train was running to time by the time it reached its final call before Victoria, Woodlands Road. For 20 seconds, the train stood at Woodlands Road, motorman Harding pulling his window down and shouting a greeting to the porter at the station, a Mr. Knight. The porter recalled a smiling, well-looking Mr. Harding when he was later asked about the encounter. After the prescribed time of 20 seconds, the electric train departed Woodlands Road and proceeded down the line towards Manchester, passing the signal box at Queen's Road Junction at the correct speed for a clear run into the city. As the train rounded the next bend, Collyhurst Viaduct No. 2 came into view. Now, Collyhurst No. 2 is quite a unique viaduct. While across the network there's a wide variety of bridges and viaducts, they can be straight or curved, very very high or very low. What you normally find is that the same number of tracks that enter a viaduct normally leave it. Your standard mainline viaduct would probably have two tracks enter, cross the bridge and leave the other side. What Collyhurst No. 2 featured was a junction. At the Manchester end, the up end if you've been listening to our previous episodes, two tracks entered the viaduct, up into the city and down leading out. But these two tracks then split. Two tracks continued on towards Bury, and two split off towards Newton Heath, and then further into the foothills of the Pennines. This junction on the viaduct high above the River Irk was unsurprisingly Irk Valley Junction. 16 minutes after the electric train had been allowed to depart Bury at 736 a steam-hauled passenger service had left Manchester, Victoria, heading out to the town of Bakeup to the northeast of the city. Hauled by a locomotive 42474, a two-cylinder steamer, originally built for the London Midland and Scottish Railway, the four passenger carriages of the train slowly started up the incline out of the station under the careful control of driver F. Heap. The 736 entered Collyhurst Tunnel, and crossed under the main lines towards Miles Platting. After it left the tunnel, it steadily travelled the almost 400 yards to Irk Valley Junction, crossing Collyhurst Viaduct No. 1, and eventually coming to a stand at the signal at the junction. In order to head to Bakeup, the 736 needed to take the junction towards Newton Heath. This would take it across the up main and onto the second branch of the viaduct. After coming to a brief halt at the signal controlling the junction from Manchester, the signal cleared and driver Heap started to take his train over the junction. As the locomotive was crossing the diamond over the up main, the electric train rounded the corner and entered the viaduct. At around 35 miles an hour, the leading carriage quickly reached the junction, where the first carriage of the steam train was now starting to cross diagonally. The front carriage of the electric train smashed into the rear of the steam locomotive deflecting both vehicles to their respective right-hand sides. Now the steam locomotive, only travelling at around 5-6 to six miles an hour at this point, ended up tipping over onto its right-hand side a few metres over the junction on the branch line. The first coach of the steam train had its leading corner crumpled, and damage continued down the side 
as the first vehicle of electric train continued to scrape along it. The leading coach of the electric was derailed to the right at an angle of around 45 degrees, and then it came into contact with the parapet wall of the bridge. At the point where it met the second coach of the steam service, it was further deflected to the right and smashed through the parapet. After hanging there for an agonising few seconds, the coupling between the first and second vehicles failed, and the leading carriage plummeted, nose first, 40 feet down to the bank below. As the front of the carriage collided with the ground, the rear started to fall backwards and ended up in the river itself, a further 30 feet down. Now the image of this carriage, lying on its side across the bank diagonally, with the trailing end submerged in the river and the viaduct towering above, is the defining one of this accident. The second carriage of the electric train ended up leading against the parapet, adjacent to the first coach of the steam service. Now, unusually for accidents of this era, there is an uncharacteristically high-definition photograph of the accident scene on the bridge. It's out there on the website Flickr, and it's actually part of a collection from Greater Manchester Police. I would say it's worth having a look to appreciate the, the height of this viaduct and the scale of the accident. It's also unusual just to see something from the 50s um, with that level of quality. Now luckily, the impact with the 736 had managed to bleed out most of the speed of the electric service. So in the end it was only that leading vehicle that fell from the viaduct. The fact that that was the case undoubtedly saved many lives and prevented this horrific pile of carriages from forming, each falling and crushing the one before. The crash was witnessed by a railway employee who raised the alarm, and all of the emergency services were there within a matter of minutes. I suppose it's one of the silver linings of this accident. Its proximity to the city centre meant that both emergency services and hospitals were close to hand. Although services on this morning were slightly quieter due to the fact it was a Saturday, the leading carriage of the electric train had been well filled and heavily damaged, so 10 people did lose their lives at Irk Valley Junction. These included the driver, Mortimer Hardman, as well as 9 passengers. A further 58 people were injured, and 22 of those injuries were classed as serious. The railway must continue, so breakdown cranes were ordered by British Rail from depots at both Newton Heath in Manchester and Bank Hall in Liverpool. Rail replacement buses were set up, not just a luxury enjoyed by passengers now. By around half past five in the morning of the 17th, less than two full days later, the line was cleared and normal working was resumed. Like all other accidents on the railway, this one needed to be fully investigated and understood to better prevent it occurring again. Much like the Nuneaton report that we discussed last time, this one took the form of a ministerial report to the relevant minister. The report for Irk Valley, penned by a Colonel D. McMullen, was released by the Ministry of Transport and Civil Aviation. The Colonel was tasked with achieving a full and thorough understanding of the events of the 15th of August. Something had gone clearly terribly wrong and with junctions like this being a very regular feature of the railway it was absolutely crucial that reasons be found. Now gaining this understanding 
and ascertaining the points would revolve around an understanding of several questions. Firstly, what was the sequence of events which had led to two different trains on the same piece of track at the same time? Secondly, what protections had been in place to prevent such an accident taking place? And finally, had anything stopped safety measures from actually being effective? Now the first point, the sequence of events was probably the most simple question to answer. Both services were timetable trains, both running to time and operated on an almost daily basis. Under the timetable itself, the electric train was booked across Irk Valley Junction at 7.40, one minute after the steam was booked across at 7.39. Now on the actual day, the electric train had passed multiple signal boxes and under the rules, each of them had to enter into a logbook what time the trains passed, as well as what time messages were sent. It was established that both trains had left their origin stations at the correct time, and while the steam train had only had a very short journey, it had passed Newtown number one box on schedule, and then it reached Irk Valley at the right time. Now this was reflected in the logs for both boxes, although in all fairness, the box records for Irk Valley were filled out after the accident took place. The electric train had been on time throughout its journey, and again this was reflected in the logs of each box. These logs, in lieu of some of the technology that we have in place today, allowed both investigators, and indeed us, to understand the details of the journeys involved. Nowadays, trains are fitted with their very own versions of the aviation industry's black box. Now they're known under several names, on-train data recorders, on-train monitoring recorders, event recorders. But whatever the name, the principle is the same. The kit records data such as speed, control positions, whether the horn was used, so on and so forth. This has proved invaluable in many accidents, but unfortunately, while they were starting to develop early versions at this time, there was nothing fitted to the trains at Irk Valley. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So the general sequence of events was well recorded using the methods of the time. We know that both trains were about at the right place at the right time. The timetable itself had them both planned to occupy the junction within a minute of each other. This close proximity of timings was nothing unusual on the railway. And busy junctions outside stations could see many moves very close together. Naturally, this introduces conflicts. So the railway obviously couldn't just give everybody a copy of the timetable and leave them to it. Nor could they just set the points based on what was expected when. This is the start of answering point two. What systems were in place to protect trains at Oak Valley and to prevent accidents from taking place? The obvious answer is that people need to be in control of the organised chaos that can be the railway. These people are the signallers. They communicate messages to trains using, well, signals. 
To better understand how this protection works, it would probably be helpful to do a very brief introduction to signalling, and particularly the type of signalling at this time in this situation, which was absolute block. The basic principle of signalling is simple and crucial in equal parts. One train in one section at one time. Only ever have one train in one section of track at the same time. The safest way to prevent trains colliding is to make sure that they're clearly separated into different pieces of track. There are some very specific exceptions to the rule of one train per section. They're not really applicable to this incident and they're even more carefully controlled than normal signalling, so I won't be going into them today. Now, while you might be used to seeing colour light signalling on your travels now, in 1950s Manchester, semaphore signals were the name of the game. Horizontal boards displayed in different ways depending on the signal that was intended. If the signal was at danger, or on, the board is horizontal. If it's at a 45 degree angle then the signal is off and trains can proceed. All of these signals were controlled by signallers, physically located in signal boxes close to the features that they were responsible for, moving the signals using a mechanical system, a complex mechanical system, of levers, cables, metal bars and pulleys. Normally these boxes were located to cover either a specific junction, such as Irk Valley Junction signal box, a specific station or a specific section of line. The last thing that it's worth touching on is the specific type of signalling that was used here. Like I said earlier, it's called absolute block. It's a method that was devised in the second half of the 19th century and it relies on the ability for each of these consecutive signal boxes to be able to communicate with each other. Now, a vastly simplified description of how this works is this. Each section of line has a signal box to control it. It also has a home signal and a starter signal. The home signal denotes the end of this block, and the starter signal is the start of the next block. Both of these signals consist of a red board and can show a danger aspect, a stop aspect, or a proceed aspect. In advance of these, you can also have distance signals. These can show a caution or a proceed. These are yellow with a notch in them. If the home signal or the starter signal are at danger, the distance signal is at caution. This is the equivalent of your yellow signal in colour light signalling. Now, in any case, these signalling sections are controlled by one signal box, and for these signal boxes to pass trains between each other, they need to communicate with each other. A simple example is this. Imagine you've got three signal boxes, section A, B, and C. Like I said before, each has a distant, a home signal, and a starter signal. Now, for a train to leave section A, that signaller must contact the signaller at block B to ask if the line is clear. If, and only if, signaller B replies saying yes, signaller A can place his home and starter signals to proceed, which would tell the train it can proceed into section B. When that train passes box A, that signaller tells box B that the train is entering his section. Now at this point, the home and starter signals in section B are still at danger. If signaller B does nothing else, the train will first come to a distant signal at caution, warning him to stop at the next signal, 
warning him that the home signal is at danger. He'll then come to a home signal at danger, which he will need to stop at. This is very safe if we don't know that the line ahead is clear, but it's not very good for an efficient railway. So, to allow the train to proceed, box B must contact box C to ask the same question as he was asked. Is the line clear? When he receives the response, yes, that is the point that he can set his signals to proceed to allow the train to continue to the next section, and so on and so forth down the line. Like I said, a very swift rundown of the system, and as I do every time, I'm going to tell you that this is probably a gross simplification of absolute block and signalling in general. But it's probably worth mentioning that a lot of this messaging between boxes was done as a series of bell codes and use of block instruments which transmit some very simple information. But I don't want to get too bogged down into that. What I would say is that there are some really, really good videos on YouTube that explain it far better than I ever could, especially over here. This also includes an LMS video, a London, Midland and Scottish video, entitled Sentinels of Safety. Now that's particularly prominent, as the signalling at Irk Valley was equipment installed by LMS themselves. The whole system relies on constant and clear communication to ensure that trains are only allowed to enter a clear section. And on the morning in question, this had taken place. Each box from Bury to Irk Valley had been offered and accepted the electric train without any real incident. There was a system in place to protect the trains. Which very much answers the second question. Was something in place to prevent it happening? Yes, there was. And it should have allowed for every train to transit that junction safely that day. If it was used correctly. And this is the point where we hit question three. What stopped the safety measures from being effective? Protections in place at Irk Valley really were adequate by the standard of the day, and had been used successfully thousands of times, but upon investigating the incident, Colonel McMullen identified two places that it had fallen down. The first, and probably the more significant, but not by a large margin, was a breach of the regulations surrounding block working surrounding the signals and the way they were supposed to be used under absolute block. The Irk Valley box controlled three sets of signals, the up main towards Manchester Victoria and the down signals to both Queen's Road box which was towards Bury and the down towards Smedley Viaduct box which leads off the junction towards Newton Heath. The signaller in control of the box was relief signaller A. Clayton. He was responsible for the safe and efficient transit of all services over the junction. Now, he was a relief signaller, he wasn't permanently based at the box, but he had taken over the duties there five days before, after he'd spent some time learning the workings, the timetable, the list of trains and the times it was supposed to pass through the area. On the day in question, the electric train had been offered from the Woodland Road signaller to the next box at Queen's Road Junction. It had been accepted, as the signals were clear. Once he received the message, train entering section, the signaller at Queen's Road, a Mr Davenport, offered the train in turn to Irk Valley and signaller Clayton, who accepted it at 7.29 in the morning. 
11 minutes before it was due through the junction, sending the message back to Signaler Davenport that his line was clear. Clayton was then offered the 736 steam train at 7.33, which he accepted, telling the preceding box that the line was clear. By the time the steam train had exited the tunnel from Manchester, Victoria, Clayton had not yet received the message to tell him that the electric was entering his section. With this in mind, he contacted Signaler Davenport and inquired as to the location of the electric train. Davenport told Clayton he would inquire from the preceding box in turn. It was at this point that Clayton made a fatal decision. Assuming that the electric had not passed the Queen's Road box, he decided that, in order to avoid delaying the steam train further, he would get it moving. He reversed the junction, set the points over to the branch, and cleared the down-home signal towards Smedley Viaduct. He went back to the telephone, and then, just after the steam loco had passed his box... He heard Davenport tell him the electric had just passed the Queen's Road box. Clayton could do nothing. The collision happened very shortly after. Well, the important thing to remember here is that the up main home signal, the signal that Mortimer Hardman would see as he was travelling towards the junction, was still at danger. It should theoretically have protected the junction. A risk was introduced by the fact that Clayton had broken a regulation that was meant to keep block working safe. Regulation 4 meant that Clayton should never have allowed the steam to cross over the junction, not after he'd told Davenport that the line was clear. It was a serious breach of the rules. He had told another signaller that his line was clear, and then took actions that meant that it wasn't. Now this directly led to the accident taking place. Now the other cause identified was just as serious. As I've explained, the Irk Valley Up Home signal, which is getting to be a bit of a mouthful, but the signal that protected the junction from the direction of the electric train, was at danger. Signal Clayton hadn't set it to proceed. It was showing a danger aspect, it was showing a stop. The electric train should never have passed it. In fact, the distance signal just before it was also at caution, and that should have prompted Mortimer Hardman to slow his train down to get ready to stop at the home signal. He didn't. In fact, it would appear that no effort was made to slow his train at all prior to the collision. I think it's fairly safe to say that this was a fairly serious breach in itself, and realistically just as much to blame for the accident. But had Signal Clayton not broken Regulation 4, he would have probably had time to pull the signals off for the electric when he received the message to say the train was entering his section. But in the worst case, even if that hadn't happened and he hadn't had enough notice to do it, the worst thing that would have happened would have been a serious irregularity, a signal passed at danger, but not a fatal crash. In order to try and understand why Mr Harden did what he did and reacted how he did, Colonel McMullen looked at the previous running of the service. He did some quite extensive research. Now from the 30th of March to the 14th of August 1953, this train was run 110 times. Now on 101 occasions, 
the train was held at Queen's Road Home Signal. This was due to the timing of the local stopping service, the steamer. It was actually stopped at the starter 29 times. In fact, there were only 9 occasions that it had a clear run through, and this was invariably due to the late running of one of the two trains. So it was very, very rare occasions that the junction distance were ever clear for the train. During that period, though, the train was never once stopped at the home signal at the junction. The crews who worked this train were used to seeing a distance that was at caution, but the signal that protected the junction had always cleared by the time the train reached it. They were always cautioned on the approach, but they never had to stop. Now, with that in mind, and with the knowledge that the train was mechanically sound based on all the other tests that were done, the Colonel concluded that Hardman, having assumed due to his past experience that this train was going to get a clear run through the junction, relaxed his attention. He simply didn't look at the home signal. He'd become so used to just rolling on through. Irk Valley Junction is an accident that is a clear example of something that's been caused by human error. Breaches of very clear regulations designed to keep everybody safe. If they'd been followed, this simply wouldn't have happened. Some of the developments that have been made since then would possibly have prevented this accident from occurring. Automatic warning system, AWS, which I did mention last time we spoke, might have alerted driver Hardman and snapped him out of his complacency. Train protection and warning system, TPWS, which is another tool that we will look at in the future, could have automatically applied the brakes if the train approached the danger signal too fast to stop, but these weren't available yet. In fact, there are a lot of developments that have been made in this industry, specifically targeted at catching us when we do things wrong. Stopping human error, becoming a loss of human life. I'm probably going to look at doing an episode at some point where we just go through some of these safety systems in a bit of detail because they are really worth understanding how they work and they're incredibly clever, but they're there to capture human error. So many of the things staff on the railway are assessed on translate to technical skills and at some point, non-technical skills, human factors, got a real focus because human factors lead to human errors. There are so many rules that train crew and signalers and dispatchers and track workers and many others on the railway need to learn and follow while they're at work. The folder full of the modules that we all have is even called the rulebook. Each one of these rules individually exists for a reason. It was certainly the case in 1953. The rules may have changed since then, but the importance and significance of following them absolutely was exactly the same then. Irk Valley shows clearly and dreadfully what can occur if those rules just aren't followed. The electrified line to Bury was closed in 1991. It wasn't closed for good, 
but it was converted into the very first line for Manchester's tram network, the Metrolink. So while you can't get the train over Collyhurst Viaduct number 2 anymore, you can get the tram over it. Now in fact the junction where this accident occurred is actually the point where the Metrolink line to Oldham branches off from the Bury line. Trams leave Manchester Victoria's newly refurbished tram platforms and then you can follow the route of the old electric trains. The third rail system with its unique side pickup is replaced by overhead wires but actually the visibility from these trams means that you can sit there among the commuters many of whom probably aren't even aware of the events that took place that Saturday morning and you can try to imagine what it might have looked like 70 years ago. Thank you yet again for tuning in to Signal to Danger. I'm still Dan. We're still a fortnightly podcast, so that means that the next episode will be released at midnight on the 11th of October. Once again, please connect with us. Social media, we're on Twitter and Facebook. Share with your friends or your colleagues. Literally anybody that you think might be interested. The more listeners I can get, the more I can look at expanding the podcast and what we're doing. I'll always be grateful for every single listener, but I'll be happy to welcome even more of you. One other thing that we have now is that we're on YouTube. For the time being, it's just the audio of the podcasts, and considering what I can do with that, I don't want to just make YouTube videos. I'm quite enjoying this, but watch this space. Until next time, travel safe.